Today we're continuing with eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series, and we're continuing with element five, which is Jesus Christ, the only mediator, or you could call it an introduction to the study of Christ, or which is called in theology Christology. And in element five, we've been on this, uh, this will be our 22nd message on it, on the eight essential elements of the gospel. This is our 42nd message. And um, I hope to finish up the part about Christology by the time we get to Z, 26 messages. But it's getting tight because I think I'll need at least one more week on the atonement. Today I want to continue on the theme. We spent about eight weeks talking about the traditional things that we talk about in Christology. More, you might say, the person of Christ. And then uh, we've been looking at for... Uh, 14 weeks now, the ministry of Jesus Christ, which unfortunately not enough attention is given to. Uh, I would really encourage you, even though I advocate systematically studying and comprehending the whole Bible and the main themes, the main theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ. And uh, he is the king of the kingdom of God. The main theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ, the king of the kingdom of God and the coming of his kingdom. And nowhere is that presented more clearly than the Gospels. And I would really encourage you to make uh, the Gospels a lifelong meditation and study. You know, uh, usually every time you read them, you'll get new insights. And uh, sometimes it's that 100th time you've read them that it really starts to come clear for you. So um, in this uh, particular uh, section... Last week, we started talking about the ministry of Jesus in, in regard to the atonement, and we put that in pra- practical expen- ex- perspective by talking about how to enter into the eight exchanges procured by Christ on the cross. One of the things that uh, has happened in the reductionist gospel today is that we are in danger of a gospel that, that, uh, ha- that is giving people a false sense of assurity that they are a Christian that they are ultimately secure with God because we've reduced it to forgiveness only. And uh, you cannot just want forgiveness of your sins and, 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 and call that as a true conversion. You have to want to exchange your life for Christ's life. So if you look at Roman numeral 4a there, I listed the eight exchanges, and uh, here are some, some uh, scriptures that go with that. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. There was a trade. The just one, the only just one in the universe, died for all of us unjust ones. And we have to trade our life. So if there's no desire to live the life of Christ, then there's no conversion. Then there's no new birth. Then you haven't received Jesus Christ. You should, be, you should have the motivations of your heart. You should have receive a new heart, become a new creation, and the motivation of your heart should be to live the life of the resurrected Christ, to please God, to, to be able to say, like Jesus said, I always do that which is pleasing to the Father. Um, so uh, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 and, and 10 says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him smit, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are he- healed. Now, 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We're going to look at that verse a little more fully uh, coming up uh, after a while. So um, you, when you, if you're really a Christian, you have a desire not to do your own thing. You know, there was a famous bumper sticker in the 60s, and really, if you want to sum up our culture since the 60s, there was two bumper stickers. One was question authority, and the other was do your own thing. Another third one might be, if it feels good, do it. And uh, that's become our culture's creed. It's become our culture's way of life. If you are in Christ, you want to do God's thing. You delight to do his will. Now, that does not mean you're entirely sanctified and you'll always be perfect and you're carrying it out. But that becomes a deep motivation of your everyday life. As simple as that. So, we have to enter into the eight exchanges. We need to receive Jesus, and that necessitates dying daily and today living a new life. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Here are some scriptures that are very impertinent to this. 2 Corinthians 5, 13 through 21 is a whole section. I wish I could have, have enough space to give us the whole section, and I would encourage you to study it for yourself. But in verse 14, it says, for the love of Christ controls us. Is that true in your experience? The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. If you have received the atonement of Christ, if you have been justified by God, if you have been reconciled, you have received a new birth, and there is something deep in your motivation that says, I don't want to live any longer for myself, but I want to live for him who died and rose again on my behalf. It's as simple as that. If you don't have that, you know, I, I was accused by a guy recently of saying, that I didn't agree with eternal security because he kept saying, well, don't you believe because I asked for forgiveness that I'm going to heaven? And, and the, I said, I'm not going to answer that question because the deeper issue is you have no, your life clearly manifests no desire to please God or to do his will. You have heard enough of the evangelical message that you're concerned about getting forgiveness and that's all you want from God. And as we looked at in some of these studies on Christ, Christ's ministry was a lot more than forgiveness, and you can't separate these things. So if all you want is forgiveness, you have not received Christ. When you've received Christ, God will give you, he will grant you free by his grace a new heart that is concerned with no longer living for yourself, but living for him who died on your behalf. You know, can you say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, past tense. And it is no longer I who live. I hear Christians tell me all the time, I'm this way, I'm that way, I have this personality trait, that person. Really? Do you even understand the gospel at all? You're a new creature in Christ. The, for 2 Corinthians 5 says that we've known, even though we knew Christ according to the flesh, we know him thus no longer. 
Therefore, we don't recognize one another according to the flesh. I don't receive your definitions of, by, of your demons or your flesh about who you are. If you're a Christian, I receive the Bible's definitions in Christ about who you are. And I'm going to relate to you that way, and I'm going to see you complete in Christ, and I'm going to pastor you in such a way as to bring that out. Um, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by trusting in, clinging to, relying on, dependence on the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We, we have reduced faith to this intellectual ascent, but it never was that. It never will be that. It doesn't matter how much we read it redefine things unbiblically or reduce their definitions, the truth remains the truth. True faith is clinging to, relying on, trusting, and you're banking your whole life on him every minute. You're leaning on him. Song of Solomon, who is this coming out of the, you know, the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Matthew 16, 40, 24 through 26, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must... That word must, deep insight here, means must. That's pretty deep, isn't it? Uh, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you grant your flesh's every desire? You'll find out. Try fasting for 16 hours, then 20 hours, then 24 hours, maybe build up to 30 hours. You'll find out who's, who's running the show. One thing I love about fasting is it, 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 brings you to, it brings you to calling out to the grace of God because you can only do it by the grace of God, and, and it, it subjects your flesh to who's going to be boss here. Are you going to do that which is pleasing to the Father or your appetites for sleep, sex, food, creature comforts? Is, is that going to rule you? you? You'll be surprised when you start uh, getting some disciplines in your life how much those petty things rule you. You're mastered by them. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. And it's not just about self-denial. It's about following him. For whoever wishes to save his suke, uh, which we get psychology from, that is your emotions, your affections, your will. You, do you, is it about your will still? We'll lose it. But whoever loses his affections, soul soul, mind, ways of thinking, will, for my sake, will find it. For what would profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange? There's that exchange. It's, you've got to trade your life for his life. That is the real gospel of salvation. All right, 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. Uh, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's the atonement so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you're healed. You were continually strained. Are you continually strained still? Like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Are you seeking the shepherd and guardian of your soul to rule? I would suggest if that's not the case, then you haven't received the atonement of Christ. You're not born again. And to have some kind of assurance because you prayed a sinner's prayer is a false assurance. You have, to, you have to be able with the psalmist to say, I delight to do your will, O God, and to walk with you is not burdensome to me. All right, so let's flip over and get into what we're getting into today. 
Only took uh, less than 15 minutes to review, so hopefully we can have uh, about a half hour on today's message. Today I'm going to talk more about the atonement. Next week I'm going to talk about uh, a particular theory of of the atonement called penal substitution and some other theories of the atonement. Or I may do that two weeks from now and next week talk about... uh, the, the theories of the atonement that are in the, in the communion meal itself in, in the Last Supper that Christ gave us, and which were really kind of the ruling ideas about the atonement in the early church. So today I'm going to talk about the necessity, why it's absolutely necessary, and why it's beautiful, the atonement. The necessity and beauty of the atonement or the, the, the uh, beauty of his cross. And, you know, we sing those songs... Uh, about his cross being beautiful, and I'm hoping we're going to sing one or two of those today. So first, uh, the first thing I want to get, I want to give us two preliminary concepts. Uh, the first one is the absurdity of the cross in the ancient world. Like today in Christian circles, although I don't know that we think about it enough, nor do we really meditate on the, the you know, like, if, if there's any one section of the Gospels that really moves me, it's usually the last three or four chapters of each one. The, you know, the Last Supper, the, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, the, the arrest, the, the, the sham trial, the, the condemnation, the carrying his cross, the crucifixion, all of that on to the resurrection. But um, if that doesn't move you, maybe you're dead. But uh, what you know, we uh, you know from the beginning, this was one of the first things we made for this church was it was a was a cross, and uh, we have a big cross out front, and uh, we have a cross on the building. It's the it's probably the most common symbol in Christianity is the cross or the crucifix. The crucifix depicts Jesus on the cross. So, uh, you know, today we we're kind of relatively comfortable, but I want to take us back to the ancient world just a little bit. So, uh, in the ancient world, the whole idea of a cross, uh, of a savior, of God himself dying on a cross was considered absurd by both Jews and Gentiles, called in the Bible Greeks, sometimes called barbarians, uh, the Greco-Roman people. So, here's some scripture along that line. 1 Corinthians 1.18 and 21 through 24, again, you can read the whole context. First, frankly, you ought to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 20 to get it in context. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us are being saved, it is the power of God. So, you know, like we kind of get used to these words. So think about it. It's foolishness. What do you, what do you think about, you know, foolishness? <laughs> when we were uh, ornery young, young men around 18, 20 years old, we used to always uh, joke that we wanted to go to one of those churches where they go, amen, and preach a brother, and so forth, and sit scattered throughout the congregation and yell stuff like, foolishness and vanity. <laughs> Would have been, uh, probably got kicked out, but and probably not a good thing to do, but we were ornery. And, uh, f- you know, what is foolishness. Think about what is foolish. You've probably done some foolish things. Anybody here ever done any foolish things? <laughs> uh, so to, the word of the cross is foolishness. It's absurd to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And that's quite a contrast. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased. This was his good pleasure. You know, remember he said of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. My soul delights in him. 
uh, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Now I'm going to take that underlying part in a minute and open it up to you a little better. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, um, in Galatians 5.11, Paul says that if he, if you was preaching circumcision, then he would be denying the stumbling block of the cross. So what do we mean by this foolishness and this uh, stumbling block thing? To Jews, the idea of a, of a God dying, the Messiah dying on the cross, was, not, was a scandal. It was a contradiction in terms. In Galatians, Paul quotes in Galatians 3.13, he quotes Deuteronomy 21 by saying, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So let's read Deuteronomy 21. Uh, I obviously have a typo there. That's probably supposed to be verse 22 through 23. Uh, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as inheritance. Now, what were what to the average Jew? You have to understand the cultural milieu. The Jews were raised knowing the entire first five books of the Bible by memory by the time they were 12 years old. In Galilee, the northern part, they learned even more. To follow the to be, you had to memorize even greater, much greater quantities of scriptures to be and be invited to be discipled by the best Pharisees and so forth. So, um, however, if there was any areas where they might be weak, they might be weak in, say, the prophets and so forth. So, um, you know, the, the concept of the suffering servant, which pervades Isaiah and some of the other prophets, was probably not as well known to the average Jewish person as this verse. Every Jewish person knew that anyone who gets hung on a tree is accursed of God. They knew that the story of Absalom, that he ended up hanging in a tree after he betrayed his father and tried to usurp the kingdom for himself. They were brought up with uh, lessons about that selfish ambition of Absalom who who did a lot, their spirit of Absalom is very prevalent in the church today because Absalom would sit outside the gates uh, when, they came, when they came to the king for judgment and he'd say, let me judge your case. He doesn't understand. And he would do the seeker-sensitive thing and water down the content so that they would like him better than David. And he stole the hearts of Israel that way, which is really the essence of the modern reductionist gospel. It's a spirit of Absalom. Stealing the hearts of God's people away from the Lord himself. And he, he was cursed, because, and he hung in a tree. So to the Jews, to hear a message of, the, of this servant who must suffer, which the scripture says over and over and over again, they didn't have ears to hear this. If anything, the Jews had developed this kind of idea that because we're God's chosen people, he will always favor us and he will always bless us. 
very much like the kingdom prosperity gospel today. We'll be blessed no matter what. And uh, therefore, when the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel came that warned them of a pending judgment, they had no ears to hear their message. That's why they killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to them. But they bought all the books and the CDs of all the false prophets who promised them blessing. You're about to have a breakthrough. They filled their churches up with 13,000 and 15,000 attending. You're, you're going to be blessed. You're about to have a breakthrough. God's going to do a great thing for you. No cost, no consequences, no responsibility, no accountability, no discipleship. Just give money. <laughs> and uh, so to the Jews, this idea of, uh, of a suffering Messiah was just a contradiction in terms. It was a scandal. And it would be very much like in their day, the kind of the most scandalous things were uh, a tax gatherer, should be today, but unfortunately it's not. Let's, let's have a movement to... <laughs> no, uh, and, uh, and, and a harlot. And it would, like today we think of maybe like, uh, you know, like some drug dealer who's involved in human trafficking to uh, support and, you know, um, to make millions of dollars and so forth. This would be like to the Jews, it would be like some kingpin of human trafficking being your savior. They had no understanding that a totally righteous God who, per, who always did that which was pleasing to the Father took the curse and took the sin of the whole world upon himself. And they couldn't, they couldn't comprehend that. And that's why, um, where did I put that? It, look, if you look in my notes, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So uh, the Greeks and the Romans... To them, crucifixion was a symbol of shame in the Greco-Roman world. If anybody's familiar with the, uh, the novel, The Scarlet Letter, you know, they would put a scarlet A that you committed adultery so that you would be publicly shamed. Uh, today, we don't have much public shaming, but, um, but you know, we might, uh, you know, like we, 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 do, we do tend to have a little pe pecking order in our society, you know, like people who do okay in school or have, are gainfully employed or who pay their bills versus say someone who's homeless and and then they're dirty and they can't they don't shower and and they maybe have an alcohol or drug addiction or whatever we would think of them we would be a little bit less likely to invite them over for dinner and we would have many excuses well they smell bad uh they you know like i don't want to get bed bugs and you know, we'd have lots of reasons <laughs> that we don't love on them, right? So to, to, a, to a, uh, a Greco-Roman person, especially an educated one, the idea of the cross was totally a shameful thing. Like that's where the, the cross was reserved for the worst enemies of the Roman Empire. And they were statist, much like the, unfortunately, like the liberal Protestants, who vote for the Democrats and the conservative Protestants, who vote for the Republicans, they were all about the state. 
They weren't about the kingdom of God. They were about salvation through Rome. And Rome, they thought, was the great Pax Romana, the great Rome builder. Rome, despite the, the, despite some of the horrors of Rome's conquest and the brutality of its slavery, at least for the first time, there were good courts and there was a, and a good justice system and there was peace and there weren't wars going on everywhere. And most people uh, were glad to worship the emperor cult. Curios, you know, Caesar is Lord. Curios, uh, Kaiser. Kaiser Curios. Caesar is the Lord. Lord Kaiser, which is, is for is the German word for Caesar, Kyrios Kaiser, that you know that that would be how they would greet each other. That's you know pe- people miss when they read the New Testament when it says Jesus is the Lord or He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. That's in a context. In the Roman Empire, there was a cult of emperor worship, and you actually had to get you had to sacrifice annually. And kind of get like your, just like you have to have a driver's license in our society and a social security card. Try not having a social security card. Although some old Arner Amish hold out and so forth. But, you know, the government requires these slavery things and these status things. And uh, in, the, in the New Testament world, you had, to, you had to sacrifice annually to the emperor. That's why the Christians began to be persecuted in the time of Nero and, and for from the time of 64 A.D. till 313 A.D. Uh, do the math, uh, 36 or yeah, plus 13, 40, 249 years, the Christians were killed for being Christians because they insisted there was another Lord Caesar. Right, so. And to the, to the Romans, this was absurd. It was a scandal. You're saying this guy that the Holy Roman Empire crucified, this guy who was considered an insurrectionist, this guy who, who we you know, mockingly called the king of the Jews in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin and Greek, this guy, you're saying he's the Lord? This guy who Caesar through Pontius Pilate crucified? So to Greeks, it was, it was, it was a symbol of social shame. It was a scandal. You know, we, we live in a culture where we're kind of desensitized to scandals. Uh, you know, there's probably a scandal. Some politician has sex in the bathroom with homosexual sex or steals money or you know, breaks the laws or hides their emails and, you know, whatever every day. Our, our, our politicians do this. Our sports stars do this. Um, you know, every public figure is a scandal in our culture. But it wasn't so in the Roman Empire at that time. So, it seemed so unsophisticated. Now, so that leads into this. Was it necessary for Christ to suffer? So Luke 24, 36 through 49, I'm going to read part of that. I don't have enough room on the page for all of it. While they were talking and discussing Jesus, and this is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is Jesus' second appearance on Easter Sunday. Uh, his first appearance being... At, at, at the, in the garden as the gardener that John did a message on. 
while, uh, while the two disciples were walking to Emmaus, uh, Jesus approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing them, him. And he said to him, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. Put yourself in their mindset. Okay, to them, a crucified Messiah was, they had hoped this was the Messiah. And now he's been hung on a tree. He's, the, he's been cursed of God. Smitten and afflicted of God. That's all the perspective they have at this point. One of them named Cleopas and answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? I guess he decided to play along. <laughs> and they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people. Now they they did understand. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones that was their center. Most Israelites had enough scriptural knowledge to know that the leaders of the Jewish people had killed one prophet after another prophet. But hanging on a tree, uh, the things about who was a prophet mighty indeed in the sight of God and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping, notice the past tense. In other words, their hopes have been dashed. We, we had been hoping. Now, there's no, way, there's no way I could give you any kind of comparison because Christianity, it'd almost be, I mean, I, you can't compare it like, what if you found out this was all not true or something? I, you know, I don't know. There's no comparison you can, that you can compare. I mean, it goes way deeper than you thought your cancer was cured and you went back for your checkup and they said it's not only cured, but it's all through your body and you're going to die in a few weeks. It's way deeper than that. It's, it's, the, it's the hope they have for all the peoples of the earth, for all the ages, for a purpose in life. For, it's, it's the ultimate hope that they were hoping for. And, and as far as they understand, it's over. We are hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They're still thinking of a political redemption. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, this idea that Jesus had to suffer is all through the Old Testament, and it's all through the New Testament. Jump up to the top uh, next to Luke to, on, on point four, I'm sorry, point, Roman numeral 5b, about uh, two-thirds of the way down the page, next to where it says Luke 24. Those are just some verses in Acts in which they were preaching the kingdom of God in the lordship of Jesus Christ, that they stressed the point that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Why? The new, over and over again, the New Testament stresses that it's necessary for the Christ to suffer. Because the Jews couldn't believe it. And because it's the, the absolute necessity of salvation. There had to be a penal substitution for sin. 
all through the Old Testament, the Passover lamb, the, the animal that, that God slayed in Genesis 3 to, to give them skins, the, the time that God cut the animals in Genesis, uh, I guess it's 18, where he cuts the animals in half and passes through them, so uh, providing atonement for Abraham. There always was shedding of blood as a foreshadowing that the Christ had to suffer. And that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. That's a major message of both Testaments. Somebody had to pay. You know, years ago, there was, uh, you know, a situation where uh, I asked a certain brother to watch some little kids in my neighborhood while I met with their mother or in my house. And the uh, guy, not knowing much about sports, decided to let them play with a real baseball bat and a softball in my little backyard. And, uh, and so the first thing they did is hit it right through the window. <laughs> and uh, the, that window is still broken because I haven't had time to get around to getting it fixed. And it's been like seven or eight years. <laughs> uh, if anybody wants to help me get the window fixed, I'd sure appreciate it. But, uh, but you know what? Someone's going to have to pay for that window. I was a little surprised that the kid's parents didn't offer to pay. Not too surprised. It's uh, different. In, in my day and age, my parents would have been making me pay for the window. And uh, that, you know, they would have, uh, I would have peddled papers or mowed lawns or done whatever it takes to earn the money to pay for the window. Because, you know what, I can forgive them, but someone still has to pay for the window. And without the shedding of blood, without a substitute, without a sacrifice, there can be no remission of sins. Someone has to pay. Because in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, you will surely die. And someone has to die to take that curse of death. It's as simple as that. We're going to go into that more, a lot, a lot more next week. But what I really kind of want us to at least do is understand how hard this was for the ancient world to understand, even though over and over and over again, it's in both Testaments. At the end there of, where I, of the Luke passage, I put a couple passages from Matthew, but I could have put passages from Mark and Luke. Matthew 16, 21 through 23, you're probably the most familiar with. So Jesus, uh, after... Uh, he, we did a whole message, if you remember, on Jesus taking them to a place called the Gates of Hades at the foot of, of the, a mountain that King Herod's palace was built on and so forth. And after that, and during that uh, encounter, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say one of the prophets is risen from the dead and this sort of thing. And he says, but who do you say that I am? That I am the Christ. And and then he tells them uh, that, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, uh, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. And he tells them, you are Peter, a little rock, and upon this bedrock I'm going to build my church. Now, the message that he builds the church upon the rock of the apostles is true, the Catholic interpretation, the Protestant interpretation that he's building it on the rock of the revelation of Christ is also true. But a deeper message is he's building his church right in the middle of the rock of the gates of Hades. We're going to go out there and liberate the wickedness. 
is true. But then, after this revelation, what's the very next thing that he does? From that point on, he begins to tell his disciples over and over again that he was going to suffer. And they didn't go, like today, we'd go, we would hopefully know enough about the atonement that we'd say, thank you, Jesus. We were, oh, we thank you that you're going to suffer and die for us. We sing songs about the atonement. We, are, we uh, rejoice in it. They didn't, Peter took Jesus aside and corrected him. And you ever done that? <laughs> uh, you, ever, you ever corrected uh, someone that's, that you shouldn't be correcting because you have no frame of reference or whatever to? Peter says, takes Jesus aside and goes, Lord, Lord, come on, this will never happen to you. We, don't worry, we'll, we got swords and stuff. We'll fight for you. This, they still thought it was about an army thing. And Jesus is telling them, he's gonna, he starts to tell them about his coming, coming atonement. And so Jesus gives them, uh, being a modern pastor, he said, Peter, hello, loves. Get thee behind me, Satan! <laughs> Just want to encourage you, but shut up! <laughs> you know, wow, he calls him a Satan. What a, that'd be a nice pastoral counseling session. <laughs> he says, you're, you're not putting your, your mind on the things of God at all, but on the interests of man. You're looking at this the way man wants it to unfold. You want me to be a conqueror, and I'm going to be a sufferer, and that's how I'm going to conquer. Wow. And then in Matthew 17, uh, the same thing happens. The Mount of Transfiguration. And then they come down from the mountain, and, and, it, and he begins to teach them that he's going to suffer. Mark records this. Luke records this. And even, even all the way to uh, Luke 24, after, after they'd heard the testimony of the woman, women from the morning that they saw Jesus resurrected, they still don't get it. And later that night in Luke 24, he appears in the upper room, and he tells them, among many other things, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer to enter into his glory? Don't you get it? I had to suffer. Now, so the last thing I want to talk about is the beauty of this man. You know, God is the ultimate judge of everything. When, you know, one of the great mistakes that I was reading some wonderful theology last night about uh, 19 common objections to the penal substitution uh, theory, that, uh, an article that John sent me, and a uh, very good article. And one of the things that it constantly makes over and over is that in, in our view, Christ, God, the scriptures, is the ultimate decider of what reality and truth is. The thoughts of my mind and the desires of my heart are not reality. That's the essence of becoming a Christian, is you renounce your commitment to your own lordship and your own godship. That's the essence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you'll determine for yourself what's good and evil. Well, I just don't think this way, or I just don't believe that way, or I'm kind of this way. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is to understand that God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one being, the ontological trinity, 
He is the ultimate definer of all truth and reality. Jesus said, if you abide in my word and my word abides in you, then you'll know the truth, that is, you'll know reality. Because the journey of the Christian life is that you are living in unreality. Every person who does, is worshiping God and coming into Christ more and more is on a journey out of fan, living a fantasy, unrealistic, deceived world. That's where people who are lost are living. They're living in unreality. That's the name of the town they live in. Unreality Earth, zip code six six six. No, I'm just kidding. whatever. I'm just kidding. just kidding. <laughs> uh, whatever. You know, uh, Unreality Earth. And so, understand that. So, you know, we have these ideas of beauty. You know, Sports uh, Illustrated swimsuit edition. Oh my God. Um, or whatever, glamour and van you know, vanity and all this kind of stuff. Let's let's think a little bit about the beauty of Jesus. Isaiah fifty two, thirteen through fifteen says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up on the cross, and greatly exalted, and eventually he'll be high and lifted up in heaven. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man. Now, if you want an interesting read sometime, read, there's a book called A Medical Doctor Examines the Cross or something like that. There's lots of articles along that line. I've read several. Uh, he, he was marred more than any man. I don't know about you, but I'm a little squeamish about, like, I like, you know what, I, I like the old-fashioned shows like Zorro from the 50s. When, like, when they get shot, they don't even bleed. <laughs> you know, they, they just fall down. And they, you know, you know, today they have to show, like, the guts come out and, and uh, you know, like, the, the, the blood squirting with a pulse, you know, and, and uh, you know, in the midst of vomit and excrement. And, you know, like, you know, like we want more reality. Well... Uh, if you think a little bit about uh, what Jesus went through, you know, the Passion of the Christ has a few scenes that are extra biblical, like when he falls off the bridge with the chain and so forth. But the Ro and the scourging, maybe it's a little overdone, maybe not, but a Roman scourging was basically 39 lashes with a whip that had was full of... Uh, uh, sharp objects, pieces of metal, glass, hooks, to rip the skin off your back so that when you were on the cross, every breath you'd have to push up against the wood full of splinters with a bear ripped off back in order to, you had to push up all the way to the, to the fullness uh, to get a breath. And then you would collapse back down. Then you'd push against the excruciating pain of the nail again to get another breath against that ripped off back. And the reason why the Romans only allowed 39 lashes, which Paul received those 39 lashes thir uh, uh, three times, was symbolically the Romans considered that 40 would kill you. And they wanted to bring you as close to death without killing you as possible so that you would have to uh, endure excruciating pain on the cross and excruciating humiliation. By the way, you weren't hung with a loincloth, you were hung naked. That's why the Gospels record that the woman, women looked on from a distance because they had modesty. 
And only Jesus' mother and John came close to the cross. So his appearance was more marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Thank you, Jesus. He has no stately form. I'm jumping down to Isaiah 53, 2. has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Do you know no one recognized Jesus because he was like handsome, like the you know movie Jesus is? He was just ordinary. He was despised and forsaken of men. You, th- you know what? One of the things you need to hear in this, no matter what you're facing, he faced more. And that's why Hebrews tells us to draw near to the throne of grace. He's a merciful and faithful high priest, tempted in all things, yet without sin. There's no suffering. There's no rejection. There's no betrayal by a friend. There's no abusive husband. There's no anything, no terrible boss, no being misunderstood on the job that you faced that he didn't face the same thing and more. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do you realize that he lived, having been in the perfection of heaven, he lived among sinful men. When, he, when You know why he cried at Lazarus' grave? He knew he was about to raise him from the dead. He cried for two reasons. Jesus wept. Everyone knows that verse, shortest verse in the whole Bible. He cried for two reasons. Because he came from heaven. It was never intended to be that way. Death was not supposed to be part of what God created. And he came to conquer death once and for all for us. He, he died out of his extreme grief in his relationship with the Father and the Spirit, knowing this was not God's intention in the first place. Secondly, he's, he's bonded closely to Martha and Mary, and he's feeling their grief. I thank God that the very first sermon I ever gave was at my little brother's funeral. I, I do funerals more with, with a great deal of passion because, you know what, uh, Grief, grief is uh, a very important thing. I, I wish I could. I'm, we're out of time, so I can't go into it. He was acquainted with grief. Um, he, like one whom men hide their faces from, he was despised. We didn't esteem him. We didn't value him. We ourselves, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That's what they thought. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting the. While we are still helpless, Christ died for us. I, I, the last two verses, I wish I had given myself more time. We really are out of time. Um, I really want to stress that you were helpless, and we'll probably pick these two verses up next week. And it was when we were helpless that he, he demonstrates his own love. You know, lots of people say, I love you, brother. But Jesus died when we were enemies of God. You weren't like a God seeker when Jesus died for you. We'll pick it up there next week. Um, you know, I, I just want to close by saying this we love because he first loved us. If you haven't spent a lot of time meditating on this, you really should do yourself a favor and spend more time meditating. If you struggle with love for studying the word or love for, you know, overcoming a sin, whatever, concentrate on the grace of God in the atonement. 
because we love because he first loved us. When you begin to study the atonement, you'll begin to understand how God demonstrated his love toward you and what a beautiful thing it is. And we'll pick that up again one more week. Amen.